Lumos. Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Harry Podcast, the show where we analyze and discuss each chapter of the Harry Potter series from a literary perspective. I'm David. And I'm Madeline, and today's episode is called Harry Podcast and the Quidditch Final. Today we will be discussing Hermione reaching her breaking point, Malfoy getting his comeuppance, and the way Rowling uses Quidditch as a metaphor for the two houses. So to start with our synopsis of the chapter, first we learn from Hermione that um, Hagrid lost his trial and that Buckbeak is going to be executed. Ron actually says he's going to help Hermione this time, and they make up. Um, Hermione apologizes for uh, Scabbers, and everyone kind of has a big reunion and works together. Then they go to Care of Magical Creatures class, and the trio talks to Hagrid and tries to encourage him um, about the appeals process, but Hagrid seems very depressed about the whole thing. After class, they're walking back to the castle, and the trio here is Malfoy making fun of Hagrid with Crab and Goyle. Um, Hermione loses it, slaps Malfoy across the face, and then pulls out her wand when he tries to react and basically threatens him and they all walk away. Then they go to Charms, but somehow on the way, Hermione disappears. Um, they find her after lunch, after the whole class is over, um, and they try to convince her that she is trying to do too much, and she finally sort of seems to agree, um apologizing for missing charms and saying that she just lost track of time. They, later that same day, have divination, and they're starting their unit on crystal ball gazing. Um, The trio is really not having it, especially Hermione. Um, Professor Trelawney comes over to their crystal ball and insinuates that she sees a grim in Harry's ball. Um, Again, as this is like the fifth time she's seen a grim for Harry, and then Hermione blows up at Trelawney and basically tells her that she sucks and she's a fraud and she leaves. Then we get to the actual like Quidditch match. The chapter's called the Quidditch Final, and there's a big match. Um, Harry is sort of thinking about it as sort of a personal one v one against Malfoy um, as revenge for how he's been treating Hagrid this whole year. The morning of the match, Harry gets up early and he ends up just looking out the window of his dormitory and sees a cat, realizes it's Crookshanks, who seems to be meeting with a shaggy black dog. Um, the actual Quidditch match is um, very scrappy, so there in particular seems to be doing a lot of cheating. Um, lots of fouls, the crowd gets very emotionally invested. Um, there ends up being a final confrontation between Harry and Malfoy over the snitch, and Harry wins for Gryffindor, and everybody celebrates. So first, I think we should talk about um, Hermione in general, and also sort of her making up with Ron and Harry, because this is like a very pivotal moment for her in the in the book. Um, and it's another one of those moments, we keep coming back to Hermione over the course of this show and talking about how much she's grown and changed as a character. This is another one of those chapters that showcases a lot of that growth, because Hermione is traditionally a very stubborn person and always has to be right. And here we see one of the early examples of her um, kind of realizing that she's been wrong and that she's been treating her friend badly. Um, and she like genuinely apologizes for it. But it comes at sort of a, a point where Ron kind of gives her something first. Mm-hmm. And then she reacts by sort of having this realization that she's been mistreating him too. Um, instead of just feeling like she's 
only a victim here. She realizes that she's also been party to this whole thing. So Ron says, yeah, like Hermione, I'm going to help you with Hagrid and Buckbeak's trial. Like we'll be, we'll do it together. Um, and then Hermione kind of like breaks down and apologizes. And she says, yeah, probably was Crookshanks that killed Scabbers. And I'm really sorry, Ron. I never wanted this to happen. Um, and they make up and it's a great moment because, you know, as readers, we probably have not liked our trio being upset at each Mm -hmm. other. Um, and, and last chapter, as we discussed, Hagrid was kind of trying to intervene on her behalf with Harry and Ron. So, and you can see like, at, you know, coming back to this later on in our lives, they were being pretty mean to her. I mean, it, and it was over, really mean, yeah. it was over like things that in the grand scheme of things are, are pretty insignificant. You know, she's kind of looking out for their safety. Right. Um, and she hasn't turned them in for using the Marauder's map or the invisibility cloak to go to Hogsmeade and... Right. Um, she's kind of looking out for their best interests, except for the scabbers thing, I will yeah. say. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's a great moment for her to, to make up and reconcile with Ron. Yeah. So let's, I want to go back to more that's happening with her character, but let's kind of keep talking about her and Ron's relationship, because I think, as you said, what gets her to sort of come out and apologize about scabbers and like give and take is that. This is kind of one of the beginning parts of, I think, their sort of romantic relationship or, like, little hints at that. And the way that the two of them work is that um, they both kind of have to step out of their comfort zones a little bit towards each other and kind of make concessions about things that they may not necessarily agree with or, um, you know, may not think is as important as the other one does. But they both kind of move towards that. So that, you know, that's just really cute, I think. And they both just really... um, they're both very stubborn, and I think it often depends on kind of, like, who moves first. I think it's often Ron, but sometimes it is Hermione, and it's just, like, who of the two of us can give the other person a break first? In this and moment. then And then both sides will kind of come to an agreement. Right, and I think even more than the, like, apologizing for scabbers in this is that I see in this chapter, like, Ron stepping up to help Hagrid is a big deal because that's just not something Ron's, like really good at it's like a lot of research and he also doesn't like care as much i think about buckbeak um but he cares about hagrid but he cares about hagrid and it's just stepping up to help in that way that like involves a lot of like hard work yeah hermione really values and then i think in this chapter when hermione stands up to malfoy and is like really um you know slaps him and is aggressive i think ron really likes that because he's like wow, like, she's, you know, she's doing something, she's breaking the rules, she's, like, actually hurt someone, you know, yeah, that's to stand kind of up thing, for herself, yeah. That's the kind of thing that Ron likes, likes to do. Yeah. Um, not that Ron would just, like, straight up punch Malfoy in the face like a sucker punch, but it's the kind of, like, Ron is very, like, um, has this machismo thing going mm-hmm. for him, too, where he has to, like, defend other people's honor, in a sense, and so uh, he's kind of, like, in awe at Hermione. He, like, Hermione never breaks the rules. And right. here she's, like, defending Hagrid's honor physically. And honestly, Ron, like, would be too scared to slap about for Like, there, I feel like in that moment he's like, oh, shit. Like, I, like, not that he would never do it, but he, I think. He's not too scared. He wouldn't do it because he knows that he would end up in over his head and get in trouble. Right. Um, but Hermione can get away with it because Malfoy is too embarrassed to go to the teachers and say that he was hit by a girl. Right. And Hermione also like whips out her wand and he knows that Hermione is smarter than him and can do whatever. Way better at spells. Yeah. So, and he's like, okay, she's off the rails. So 
I lo- so we kind that's of that's kind of with the point where they hold her back and they're like, listen, it's he's not worth. And the movies, they're like, he's not worth it. Let him yeah. go. Um, which is a great scene. I yeah. love that scene. Um, in this book, I think they just kind of hold her back until Malfoy runs away. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it is it is a great moment, and we should talk about that too. Um, that that's another classic like character development moment for Malfoy because uh, he is like the classic bully. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is classic bully behavior when they are confronted and embarrassed publicly, they try to get back at the person in like sort of a more private way. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and often a good way to deal with bullies is to confront them sort of publicly right. and shame them. Um, but often that doesn't work because, you know, as we see a lot of the time. It doesn't work for Malfoy. He doesn't care. Well, he, he does care about this. This yeah, cuts this. him very deeply. Yeah. Um, but what I mean is, like, he might try to get revenge on her in a more subtle way. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and then we see Harry decides that, like, the upcoming Quidditch match is now the perfect sort of referendum or forum in which he can beat Malfoy one-on-one and sort of uh, settle the issue, quote-unquote, that right. way and be like, I'm better than you. So before we get too much more into the Malfoy-Harry dynamic, because that's really important, I do want to back up more to Hermione and this chapter because I think that... Um, besides her, like, interactions with Ron and Malfoy, like, this is a really cool chapter for her because she is, like, too tired to be perfect anymore because she's just exhausted. She's making mistakes. Like, she misses charms completely. She, you know, doesn't, she falls asleep. She doesn't do the time turner. Um, everything's kind of messed up in that way. Um, so we see, like, we've been seeing this as time goes on. She's getting more and more like, hanging by a thread, and the, you know, I think the reuniting with Ron rejuvenates her a little bit, but she's still not doing well, so she just doesn't care anymore, and she slaps Malfoy, and then she quits divination, which we all know she hates divination, they don't get along, but for her to quit a class and, like, disrespect a teacher and be really just rude and not care, like, she, it's, it's an awesome moment. I love Hermione in this chapter because I think that she's honestly being pretty true to herself. She's like, I just, I don't care. I don't care about the things that I don't care about because I really put myself into the things that I do care about, whether that's classes or, you know, helping Hagrid or whatever. And I cannot deal with Malfoy because I'm trying to help Hagrid and I just don't care and he just needs to shut up. Yeah, it's it's great. I actually really do think that the moment where she reconciles with Ron and Harry is in some ways like the breaking point. It doesn't mm-hmm. it doesn't seem like that would push somebody over the edge into like insanity or anything and I'm not saying that she's being insane. I'm saying that it was like a moment of clarity for her. Yeah. And that after that point throughout this whole chapter she's very like emotionally raw because mm-hmm. she's had this mm-hmm. really intense emotional interaction. Um and so after that it you're right, you're totally right. It's like she's too emotionally exhausted not like physically mm-hmm. i mean she is physically exhausted too but it's like she's also just too emotionally exhausted to deal with people's bs mm-hmm. and that includes draco and trelawney um and like parvati and lavender i mean she doesn't have anything against them personally but she's just like i'm so sick of your like simpering yeah. you know kiss-ass attitude towards trelawney um and she is realizing that there are things that are more important to her than being perfect, than being, like, the perfect student. She doesn't need to be the only student ever to go to Hogwarts to take all 12 classes Mm -hmm. and get A's in all of them. Like, 
for her, it's okay to, to pass 11 classes and get A's in all of them and drop divination because she doesn't like it. Yeah, and because she... I mean, I, I think that even though we, we've talked a lot about Trelawney and we'll continue to talk about her and, like, possible benefits of divination, I think that, in general, it's a class that is not very serious. And to be... She's trying to figure out, like, real facts. And she's also using very intense magic with the time turner. And she's yeah. like, I can't just be here, like, gazing at the crystal ball, literally, and just finding omens that she doesn't see any use to. And so yeah. I, I think that it's makes a ton of sense that she would do that. And I think that it's good for her to kind of hit this point because I didn't really think about that before, about, like you said, the breaking point being um, her reconciling with Harry and Rom. But I think that is true because she's finally feels like she's back kind of with the people that matter most. And she's also like validated in that like, they know she's been having a hard time. She probably knows that Hagrid, you know, helped her out a little bit there. And she's like, I just need to care about my friends and I don't need to care about everyone else. Yeah. And, and you know, Hermione is like a very logical person. I think it makes a lot of sense for her to issue divination um, because divination is kind of something that you just have to take on faith. Um, and we've seen that, like, the, the characters that can do divination in the series... Um, Generally, what their attitude is about it is that, like, you kind of either can do it or you can't. Right. There's not really, like, you can't really learn how to do it. Frenzy in his later classes, I think it's in fifth year that he teaches um, our, our cohort, um, he kind of, you know, he, he, like, tries to show them stuff and then people don't really see any success. And he's like, yeah, you know, I mean, it takes centaurs decades to get good at this mm-hmm. stuff. And, like, maybe you guys just can't do it. I don't know. Yeah. And and it's the kind of thing, like, Hermione would get really frustrated with that, and so I'm glad that she doesn't continue on. Um, she's also learning that while she is, like, a very logical person, um, you know, I'm sure you you uh, talk a lot about, like, rational mind, logic mind versus um, wise mind versus emotional mind. She's learning how to integrate those things, and it's not um, so simple as, like, you just pick one or the other. She has a very emotional reaction to things that Trelawney is saying, mm-hmm. and... Um, you know, she, she does, like, become very angry in that moment, and she does something that maybe she would have regretted, which is, like, insulting a teacher and then mm-hmm. storming out. But she realizes that that actually was the right decision. Yeah. So it is, like, you know, she can use that, too. Um, and it's not, like, something that she has to suppress all the time. Whereas, you know, up to this point in the book, we've, we've seen her kind of on the edge of tears all the time, but she's never really letting her emotions out. Here in this chapter, she does let her emotions out with Harry and Ron at the beginning, and then, like, throughout the whole rest of the chapter, continues to sort of integrate that emotional part of her being into her actions, too. Right. And I think it's interesting, and we'll talk more, like, in, obviously, the next few chapters, but I think it's interesting to me that, like, she does let go so much, and she does kind of, like, not care and is open about a lot of things, but she still does not, um, you know, confess to Harry and Ron what's going on, which... Of course, like, she's not supposed to. There's a lot of reasons, but I think they know now. Like, they're like, you were just here and you're not in terms. Like, what is happening? Like, they, they don't know what's going on. Like, they are very stupid, we, we've we talked about. Yeah, they're very stupid. But I do think at this point they're, like, they're kind of so emotionally raw, too, that they don't really know. But they're like, something is happening. This is not normal. They have to be. I and mean, so I think the fact that she, you know, she's clearly so, this is so important to her and... 
the pressure that she feels of having the time turner and having to keep it a secret is has been really getting to her and even at this point where she's unburdening so much she's still keeping that in yeah and that that situation is like obviously what's driving a lot of this rawness for her um but yeah that moment where she misses charms is so odd as the reader because you like ron are very confused you're like she was just here where'd she go we, we have to go to charms we're gonna be late um and then you find her after charms and she's studying right or she fell asleep on a on a pile of books that she was reading and she wasn't at lunch like all these things that are yeah really strange and and you're like what well, that doesn't make any sense um and so the excuses are getting flimsier right. for hermione she's less able to cover her tracks um and so we do see like the mask slipping a lot right um even so ron and and harry still don't figure out what's happening because i mean how could they really i mean i think they're they are very stupid but like ron must know about time turners i don't know being from like a ministry family i don't know i feel like he must yeah but anyway i mean they don't they don't look they don't pick too up deeply it. into it, and, and we move on with the story because we have to. Um, I love the interaction that Harry oversees between Crookshanks and uh, Padfoot um, because at first, you like, I love these, these setups because mm-hmm. Harry keeps hearing about the Grimm and then he sees one. And you're like, he's going crazy, he's paranoid. Yeah, or, or you're like, you know, what I thought when I was reading the series is like, these are real omens like this is a real sign um it's not as simple as just like a death omen and in fact what we realize later on on rereading the series is that what trelawney is seeing is not a grim she thinks it's a grim but it's Mm -hmm. actually just padfoot the dog Mm -hmm. um that harry keeps seeing and so you know she sees it in her crystal ball and then he sees it in real life um very cool and and uh i love this interaction because it explains, like, ret- like when we come back to this moment later on, it explains so much about what's happening. Mm-hmm. That, like, of course, like, Crookshanks and the dog are friends. That's why he was able to get into the, to the building. Mm-hmm. It's why he was able to get the passwords, the Gryffindor dormitory. Um, it's why he knows that Peter Pettigrew is in uh, Ron's dormitory or that he's not there now. Mm-hmm. Um, right? So this is why Sirius ends up knowing how much he does later right. on. Um, and I love that Harry actually like sees this interaction happening because later he's going to think, oh, like Crookshanks betrayed us and he's on the side of the dog. Right. Right. But then it actually, the dog is on their side anyway. It's, I mean, so what, I think it's interesting because I, I, I agree with all, everything you just said and like why it's really cool that this scene is included. Um, I wonder what, if this meeting is significant, like, are they planning something specific in this meeting or is this just establishing like, kind of in hindsight, when we look back, is this just establishing that, like, they are friends and they hang out, like, almost days, probably? Yeah, I don't know. Um, maybe in uh, future chapters it'll become more clear, but I actually, like, don't really remember whether this meant anything specific at the time. Yeah. So I want to talk um, more about the game itself, and we have been flipping back and forth when talking about this dynamic between Harry and Malfoy. So as you mentioned, Harry's kind of seeing it as this battle sort of to redeem, like, himself and, like, the side of good, basically, (laughs) Gryffindor versus Slytherin, which is kind of the battle that we're going to be talking about. This metaphor is, like, good versus evil, like, playing dirty, like, who's going to win? And I think that um, Harry is seeing that in Malfoy as this 
progresses, but I also think that um, the way that Malfoy is treated in this chapter is really different than the way he's been treated in previous chapters, because not only do we see, like, he's, like, Hermione slaps him and he, you know, is just, like, shocked into silence, basically, um, that's one consequence for his shitty behavior, and then, uh, the trio is also, I think, just so, like, disgusted with him in this because of how he's being with Hagrid and just who he is as a person, that they're less scared of him. Like, I feel like as readers, we feel less scared of Malfoy um, than we have done starting in this chapter because, not that he's a kid, but he is scary and we also just dread when he comes up in the chapter and we still dread him in this, but I think especially once we get to the game, we're like, ugh, Malfoy is just such a loser. He's not even worth it, basically that they're just disgusted by him and he's, like, not this huge villain. He's just more, like, something that needs to be, you know, gotten rid of. Yeah, I think this slap, essentially, I mean, it, it, it humanizes him, but it also makes him look really weak. Right. Um, because he doesn't have a response. Yeah. And uh, Crab and Goyle are just standing there uselessly, and he's so embarrassed. Mm-hmm. And so I think it just, it's it's, like, it's why that kind of thing works on bullies is, is that if you can like humiliate someone that way, um, often they'll just like leave you alone because they're not scary anymore. Right. Sometimes they'll try to get back at you anyway, which, um, Hermione like does go missing this chapter. And I think Harry and Ron briefly do think like, Oh, Malfoy like, did something to her. Yeah. Malfoy did something to her. Um, but he didn't. Uh, so, you know, I guess that one comes up empty. And we do see like, I think that, like, it'll be interesting to kind of follow, in a way, throughout the rest of the books, um, Malfoy and Hermione's relationship, because I do feel like Malfoy tries his best to get back at her, like, verbally, and just, like, be clearly disgusted with her even more than he already is, but you know that he has no power over Hermione when he does still have power over Harry and Ron pretty much through the end, but I think that at this moment, like, Hermione has been, like, you're nothing to me, and he is definitely, like, doesn't want to cross her. That's true, but I think this kind of puts her on his radar more. Like, before this, he definitely felt like Hermione was just beneath him. Yeah, like, yeah, that's contempt-worthy, um, you know, because she's muggle-born. Um, but this kind of makes her elevated on his you know, naughty list in a sense. Yeah, where people he's like, to torture. Yeah, now I, now she's someone that I actually do want to get revenge on, mm-hmm. essentially, whereas before she wasn't worthy of even that consideration. Right, right. Okay, so let's talk about the game. So we've briefly mentioned that, like, Slytherin plays dirty. Mm-hmm. But I, I do think this is actually a device by the author to sort of say something generally about Slytherin House as it relates to Gryffindor and to contrast the two houses. Um, she, and she meaning the author, she has an unfortunate way of sort of generalizing Slytherin House. Mm-hmm. And so I don't want to do that here, but like you can't ignore that that is what she's doing in this chapter too, mm-hmm. is that by having everyone on the Slytherin team essentially engage in two two things, the corruption of having... Malfoy by his way onto the team mm-hmm. with the brooms last year um, and the like playing really dirty, breaking a lot of the rules, fouling players, 
basically doing whatever they can to win. It characterizes the whole house as being uh, ambitious and um, not really caring about what's fair or what's Mm -hmm. honorable, but just like winning is the thing and however you want to win, if you can get away with it, is acceptable. Like the ends justify the means. That should be the motto of Southern House. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So yeah, I mean, that, that does characterize the house and we do see that there aren't like good eggs on the team that don't engage in this kind of behavior. It is everybody. Right. Whereas you contrast that with Gryffindor, they generally play fair. I won't say all of them play fair. Fred and George certainly have their fair share of fouls too, but they tend to to commit those fouls in retribution rather than like overtly. Right. It's like a self defense sort of situation. Kinda. I mean, they take it too far, but you know, they're they're getting back at the Slytherins for fouling their players. Yeah. Not just like, oh, I'm gonna foul them because I want to win. You know right. what I mean? It's a different. There's a different impetus behind it, and that actually does make a difference in the reader's eyes. It does, and I think also the way the crowd is written in this chapter and the way that we see the fans um, engaging. Even McGonagall, like, so she's, there's, like, you know, the comedy of her trying to shush Lee Jordan. Who's oh, I love that. freaking yeah. out, which is great and happens in other chapters, but it's really good in this one because Lee Jordan is swearing and he's just, like, clearly unbiased. And McGonagall at first is, like, trying to stop him from doing that but then she's also like in it and she is like the most you know laced up like yeah type person that we have pretty much in the series and so to have her be doing that and then at the end she's like crying and excited yeah at one point i think when um malfoy pulls harry's broom back when he's trying to catch this like lee jordan is is cursing malfoy out on the microphone and he like pulls it away from mcgonagall so he can continue doing it um, without her interfering, but then the camera, the quote-unquote camera through the narrator's lens, looks at McGonagall, and she is just, like, staring at Malfoy, like, shaking her yeah, finger yeah. at him, like, not even paying attention at all to what Lee no. is saying. It's a great moment of uh, of writing for um, for Rowling. And, and I do want to say, like, this is one of the more prominent Quidditch matches that she's written. It's a good, well-written Quidditch match. In the series. Yeah. And I think uh, I was thinking today um just like on my own time about like other ones that i can remember i think this is one of the later ones that focuses primarily on harry winning the game for the team Mm -hmm. the later books kind of diminish harry's role um in quidditch even when he's captain in his sixth year he kind of has a diminished role as quote-unquote hero of the team Mm -hmm. um and other people sort of take a a more front seat role in that and that's ron and Ginny and and other players too um this is really the match where Harry wins it for the team and it's like Harry wins and the team gets to celebrate, but it's Harry that really did it. You know yeah, I mean? no, it's true. And I do think like I had to go, I was, I usually sort of skim through the Quidditch matches cause like, like Rowling doesn't really like writing them. I don't really care about reading them most of the time, but I did kind of double track, like go back reading this time, especially the, the scene of Malfoy pulling Harry's room because I sort of had to go back and be like, wait, what happened? What did he do? Because that's a very specific yeah. detail. And like the way, just like the way that she's writing the like blocking of that is like really, you know, it's very vivid. And then to see again, the McGonagall scene. So I think this is really good. And I think that you're right that it is exemplifying like Gryffindor and Slytherin sort of like, you know, good versus evil type stereotypes but in a way where that's also what i was thinking about with the crowd is like 
seeing how involved people are and knowing, like, yes, that's the way people are about sports and, like, people are crazy about sports finals even though they don't matter. But they are really, really, like, clearly taking it as, like, this means something about us as people and that we have won over you is a huge deal. Um, And especially given, like, what we know about Hogwarts and the houses since Harry's been there, this feels like a huge triumph of like, all yeah. right, we're we're showing that we're gonna play relatively fair and win, and all your cheating and buying your way in can't get you this. Right, and and this is also well, no, this is the first time we've had a Quidditch final in this series mm-hmm. that the audience has been privy right. to. Right, that's true. First year, Harry was out unconscious, so we missed it, and they got steamrolled. Um, second year they canceled it because the Chamber of Secrets was open and Mm -hmm. people were getting attacked. So this is the first one that we've actually gotten to see. And, and you're right. Like emotions are running high. I think seeing McGonagall's reaction to everything was probably the most eye-opening part of all that. Mm -hmm. She really, really is invested in it. And yeah, it's a great thing for her character. I mean, we see a lot and we see like this kind of continues forward in the series of like, knowing that even though McGonagall will, you know, stand behind Dumbledore and follow the rules, like, she is proud to be head of Gryffindor House, she believes in Gryffindor House, and she also, like, will, in a in a less, you know, a less intense way than Hermione, but similar to Hermione, like, she will follow the rules until, you know, she knows it's the right thing to do to not follow the rules. And she does, especially later on in the series, um, you know, follow that. And I think that yeah. this is clear McGonagall's values I think and and she embodies like the Gryffindor values really well Mm -hmm. um she obviously embodies you know I I would say Hufflepuff's values too hard work fairness Mm -hmm. loyalty um but Gryffindor's in the sense that like her main thing is sticking up for what's right and Mm -hmm. generally she agrees with the rules because she has a hand in making them theoretically um but she also you know, she primarily wants people to be fair to each other, um, and she wants uh, what's right to happen. Yeah. So when she sees people misbehaving and breaking the rules and abusing each other and trying to abuse the rules, um, that's what irks her more than anything else in this match. I think not just that they're doing it to Gryffindors, but that they're doing it at all mm-hmm. um, is what is what upsets her the most. And speaking of you know, McGonagall had a Gryffindor house and all of her reactions. It's kind of interesting that Snape is noticeably absent from possibly the game, or at least just the writing about the game, um, because all of last chapter was about Snape and his grudge and that whole situation. So I think it's interesting that he's not mentioned at all in this entire chapter and that we're not seeing, you know, an equal or even just any other reaction from him during this game. There's no, um, there's nothing. I don't know if that means anything or not. It's interesting, yeah. It would be interesting to be able to contrast their attitudes towards what happens in the game. Um, we don't think of Snape as someone who really cares about fairness uh, and equality. Or Quidditch or, in general. Or, well, he cares about Quidditch because he wants Slytherin to win. He doesn't seem to care about the game. Um, and so he, I think even more would be willing to allow things like rule breaking to occur, Mm -hmm. um, if it means that Slytherin wins, which again is, is evidence to our, 
sort of overarching um, experience of this event through Rowling's eyes of like it being about Slytherin's values versus Gryffindor's values and, and how the heads of houses embody those and the players also do. Right. Um, but yeah, it would it would be cool to be able to see him there in some capacity just so that we could get his reactions to these events. But at the end, uh, Harry does manage to catch the snitch and he beats Malfoy and he's very, very happy about that. Um, so that leaves us kind of where Malfoy is going to be even more upset. He's been humiliated sort of twice this chapter. Um, and his only solace really is that Hagrid has lost the case. So he'll continue to make fun in that regard. Mm-hmm. Um, but he doesn't really have anything else going for him. No, and now the trio is back together, and it is a relief. It's always stressful, and it will continue to be really stressful in later books um, when they're not all together um, or getting along. But I think there is always a sense of relief, so like, okay, going into the next chapter, and yeah. for the rest of this book, at least, like, they are going to be together on the same page, communicating with each other as much as they can right now. And that is a, a good feeling for us as readers, because it's been a while. My least favorite part of these two books, because it is Prisoner of Azkaban and Goblet of Fire, where one of the three was not speaking to the others, um, or at least not speaking to Harry, um, and Deathly Hallows too, I guess I don't really think about that as being the same, because he wasn't even there. Yeah. Um, But yeah, that's always my least favorite part of of those books, where, where in this one it was them not speaking to Hermione, and the next one it's Ron not speaking to Harry. Um, And that chapter where they reconcile... In Goblet of Fire, it's the first task. I think mm-hmm. uh, it's just such a relief as a re- uh, as a reader. And and Harry comes back to this moment where he wins the Quidditch Cup for Gryffindor later on um, when he's thinking of happy memories for mm-hmm. Patronuses. And part of that happy memory is not just like his triumph over Malfoy and triumph over Slytherin and people cheating to try to win the match against him and him still being better than them. Um, but it's also that he's like got his friends supporting him. Yeah, it's huge. Yeah, and and that ends up being the centerpiece of all of his happy memories is the friends supporting him thing. So yeah, it's a great moment for Harry. Thank you all for listening to Harry Podcast and the Quidditch Final. We hope you've enjoyed our discussion of this chapter. If you have thoughts or questions about anything that we've discussed today, especially Hermione's character development, her reconciliation with Ron or Malfoy's bullying, please email us at contact at theharrypodcast.com. We really love hearing from you. You can find out more about the show and listen to any of our episodes at theharrypodcast.com or on Apple Podcasts. Stay tuned for next time when we peer into Chapter 16, Professor Trelawney's Prediction. I'm Madeline. And I'm David, and we'll see you next time on The Harry Podcast. Knox. Knox.